pick any period in time in America, 60s, 40s, 1750s. They wasn't listening to rap music. They may have been some of the most brutal human beings on the planet. Brutalized a whole other demographic based on a social construct of race. Welcome to Surviving Society with Chantel Lewis and Tiso Regis. Executively produced by Georgia Fori Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society. We are really excited today to be joined by Tony D, aka Tony Dangerously, who is the poisonous poet, battle rap champion, and an educator, and happens to be one of Tiso's oldest friends. Tony, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, man. Much appreciated. If someone said to me in 1989, would I be sitting here interviewing the person who sat next to me in history? <laughs> we spoke the most shit. We gave each other our maths homework to copy. To most people, he's Tony D, but to me, he's my best friend from since 1989. Sorry, I'm just sat here grinning because I feel like I'm. I feel like I'm like a witness at like a family union. It's really weird. It's weird, man. It's weird that uh, like the interview interviewee kind of thing between me and you like it, it, it doesn't make sense it doesn't make sense do you know what I've got to say though Chantel how did you get into a podcast with this guy because I've known him 30 years and he can't speak yeah he doesn't know how to talk right and you've got like you've got a podcast with him how does this occur like, you could have said to me of any he can write he's really good with language he can write and stuff but he can't talk and you've got him doing talking. How? How? T, I think you're a brilliant talker. So that that to me, that's that's so weird to say. I think I'm quite hard work in that, like, I'm like T. So we're doing a podcast. This is what's happening. I think I think that's I think that's definitely added to it. Anthony, we know each other before all the hype, before the layers get built on. So in school, like, listen, I want I want that chatty man. Like, T, were you shy? Yeah, like from coming. Do you remember? You have to remember. Man was coming from a small East London school, and they get trans get transported to South London. All these people, and I'm thinking, some of them are just rude. <laughs> like you'd say hello to them, and they were like, "What, my boy?" I'm like, "Bro, I didn't even know what my boy meant." <laughs> you guys do go a long way back, and in our pre-chat, we were sort of talking about the things that we're really interested in discussing with you, Tony, because obviously, like. You're a very successful rapper. You're an educator. Like lots of people look up to you, just as they do you, you as well, Tiso. But I think your experiences combined tell a story about London, the music scene, class, gentrification, lots of things that we talk about on the show. And I guess it would be really interesting for you to tell us a little bit about how you got into music. I've been listening to hip hop since. 85 maybe I think the first record I bought was called uh, Only Bugging I got a 7 inch single still in my mum's house called Only Bugging and then I heard Run DMC Beastie Boys like 87, 88 was listening to it and then 89 secondary school when I met Tease uh, and just like he said I'd come from a small there was like 30 people in my class 10 boys in my class in my primary school then I went to secondary school and there was 30 boys in a class 
and there was four class, five classes. Was there yeah. five or four? Was it five four, classes? Four, 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 four. four. So that's no, that's nice. I from, the first year was five. In the first year was five. Yeah, so there was five. It was a five form entry. I'd gone from one of ten boys in my class to all of a sudden I'm in a year with like 150 boys. Hip hop was mainly what they listened to, and yeah. So over the like, I'd overheard a conversation where someone said to someone else, "You don't know about N.W.A." So I went home. I went to Red Records that weekend, and I bought straight out of Compton. Uh, by N.W.A. And I know, Tish, I know you remember me and you on the bus walking to school, rapping, gangster, gangster, all the way to school, man. Listen, listen, I'm going to tell you a funny side note that kind of links to all three of us, right? See that street we walked down, listen to that song? That's the street that Chantel lives on. Mad. No mad. way. <laughs> listen, you know how mad yes. that was? And, and, no, no way. When Tiso comes to my house, it's always like, Chantel, you don't know the memories. Oh, that's insane. That's mad, you know. I was walking down the street and I was thinking, I recognise this place. <laughs> that is like, that's mad. That's crazy, man. Yeah, so I, I kind of, we just got into hip hop. Like, that was the thing. For the people that I grew up with outside of school, they were into, like, dancehall. So that's, when I, when I was outside of school, I was mainly listening to dancehall. Aside from my little, one of my brethren, uh, who's a rapper called Tuza. He used to, him and his uncle had thousands of hip-hop records, man. Thousands. And he'd just make us little tapes and that. So, yeah, I'd sit and just study the lyricism, man. Study what these rappers did, how they did it. And I just really wanted to be a rapper. I really, It looked like the coolest thing in the world to do. To be able to just, what? Just rap at somebody, man. That, that, yeah, who wouldn't want to do that? Like, I didn't really get into actually rapping until I'd left school. But in terms of listening to it, yeah, that's where all of the stuff happened, man. Yeah, right. that was just, it sparked the interest. I loved, uh, I like what you can do with uh, rap more so than any other genre of music. Something you can't do in dance or jungles too fast. But rap just give you that, you can tell a story. Uh, and I love that. If we're thinking about it historically, we would start listening to hip hop at a very particular time. When you're talking about lyricism, the lyrics at that particular time, especially around 88, 89, you're moving from a period of NWA kind of encapsulated the gangster movement, but there's also a, a political black nationalist movement that's very prominent in hip hop, especially in the early nineties. And I think kind of the kind of best representation of that is Ice Cube's death certificate. Probably it's very political, and I think most people in the mainstream would know Public Enemy. Yeah. We come into hip hop at a particular time. Did that influence you? Because I know it influenced me. The constructions of what it meant to be a rapper. So. Is it for you, is it about being a lyricist? But certain people, a construction of being a rapper in that mold would be a gangster, right? So that, did this influence how you constructed yourself? I, I don't think I could have escaped it. You know, I, it had to have an impact on me because it was, it was such a, a, a formative period of, of anybody's life. When you're 10, 11, 12 years old, everything's an influence. Everything's a building you up. The, the gangster rap kind of thing, listening to the stories they told... I'd had no idea. Like America to me was Knight Rider, Dallas Dynasty. It was like a, a different kind of, you know. Like, and then all of a sudden you heard these rappers who were talking about like people getting shot like every day. Every day someone's getting shot or, or they, they are robbing or they selling drugs and whatnot. And it also kind of coincided with the time in my life when I was all of a sudden running outside. Like that was when I got to secondary school was the time I was allowed to cross the street. Like, I lived on a whole estate. 
you're like Tiso, no, Tiso, Tiso, you yeah, yeah, yeah. like I lived at the front of the estate. So as a child, I could travel the entire estate. But once I got to secondary school, I could go across the road into the other estates. The place where I grew up in Elephant was quite famous for uh, like burglars. Um, and then also the drug dealing, obviously drug dealing and drug taking was was quite prevalent. My real life also cra- like clashed with the music I was listening to because the stuff that they was talking about, all of a sudden I was seeing other people around me doing so yeah, that would have definitely had an impact, and I think the the, the pro blackness of like the polit- the politicized movement. So you had Public Enemy, you had Ice Cube. Back then, you had like songs like Self Destruction, and we're mm-hmm. all in the same gang of people actually trying to unify a culture, unify um, very fractured black like, people. If you look at the demographic, or just being African American, mm-hmm. like the entire history of it. It's if the black people nowhere else in the diaspora have grown like that little section of people there. So the, the the political movement, it had me intrigued. Like I learned so much about history, even kind of just made me want to know what who's like who's this person? What did this happen? Obviously, it shaped me more than I had noticed, because look at me now. Do you know what I mean? I'm here. Uh, <laughs> Like, this is kind of like the end of the road. But at the time, I was unaware that it was shaping me. But, yeah, it was definitely taking me places. Um, and I think just, yeah, it, it's knowledgeable. Hip-hop was... Knowledge is one of the foundations of hip-hop. Do you know what I mean? Like, knowledge of self. So, yeah, it, it opened a lot of doors. Now, see, that's interesting we talk about that. So when we talk about the idea of knowledge, right? So the common understanding of hip-hop is very flat and two-dimensional, right? So I guess in kind of our language, Chantel, it would be hip-hop as domination, right? But... Like you just said, the hip, one of the foundations of hip hop is knowledge, knowledge of self. So it's a key to liberation. Mm-hmm. But so the question is then, why do we choose to represent ourselves in such two dimensional ways in hip hop, given its wide breadth and history and the ability to use language? And language is a very kind of uh, mercurial thing. It allows us to kind of represent ourselves in different ways. Why do we choose to represent ourselves in such two dimensional ways when this hip hop culture is a way of like between me and you, like exploring our history, exploring our blackness, sometimes exploring our masculinity in different ways. But why we've allowed this culture to represent itself in such a kind of two dimensional way? I don't know if we as the people who do it necessarily push that narrative to the forefront. Like, if you look at the pro-black rap, you had X-Clan, uh, you had Public Enemy, you had the Poor Righteous Teachers, uh, you, like, groups who were doing that, they kind of faded away, they were pushed to the side. Even, uh, I remember the UMCs had a really kind of, their debut album was kind of, like, trippy, really happy-go-lucky, and then their second album was just gangster. They flipped it over completely and went 100% gangster rap. Part of it, this familiarity, so... We know criminals. We know that side of life. So when people are talking about it, it resonates. Uh, so that's that's one aspect of it. But the other aspect of it is that I think, especially in this country, you have a demographic who listens to drill, who have no no day to day contact with the lifestyle or anything like that. They live out in the countryside, um, but they are the main consumers of this music. And I think that may play a massive part. like Because, I mean, for instance, I was 12 years old, we 12, 13 years old in England, and we buying just that stuff. We only taking in 
that part of it. Yeah. So it doesn't matter what they're putting out or who's putting it out. If the all, if you're only going to be receptive to a certain type of thing. So um, yeah, we we kind of you had record labels, they want to make money. Their objective is to make money. What sells more? Uplifting uh pro-black type of thing, because the main demographic, white people are not gonna want pro-black rap music, but they might want to hear this gangster shoot 'em up stuff. Do you know what I mean? Like the, that 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 just that ghetto stuff or whatever it is. So the, the people who consume it may have had a may have played a much bigger part in making that more popular than 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 other types of rap. I really but. like that analysis, Tony, because I think what you did with Tiso's question is basically flip it on its head in that it's not that the artist wants to be seen as one dimensional, but that is how that is yeah. what has been sold. And it's like what you were saying before we got on the show, T. If you're a black man, you're growing up working class environment in the city, you're going to be an athlete or you're going to be a musician. That is what the consumer wants you to be. To be anything nuanced, maybe it's not going to sell records. But do you think that that has been, obviously we're talking about sort of the late 80s, early 90s. In terms of the last sort of few decades, do you think that that's changed slightly? I mean, we can talk a little bit about like misogyny and homophobia and that sort of thing that's sort of been, that has been a sort of ugly side of the hip hop movement. But there are, I feel like we have seen much more nuance and less two dimensional representations as well. Yeah. Ultimate imperative is capitalism that sits above that, right? And it, the capitalism constructs and it confines, especially young black artists are interacting with their mainstream audience, right? So if you look at the kind of journey of hip hop, it still plays upon stereotypes of, in this particular genre, because it's it's very masculine, of black masculinity. So from the gangster to the player who is a pimp who exploits women, all this stuff there, it's still very two-dimensional. So even though it shifts, it shifts on the ground of capitalism, it shifts on what can sell, what images sell of black people. And the idea that predominates is of a black man who is still wild, but still controllable, the bad man trope who exists outside the law. And what's quite interesting is how we internalise that bad man. But me and you, Stan, like, listen, for some of our lives, we lived that little bad man trope. And that bad man trope would lead to kind of how we constructed images of masculinity within the community, but also how we regulated each other. So who's mm-hmm. cool and who's not? What clothes yeah, we're wearing? I'm going to be honest, we became good at it, man. In our respective fields, we become good at it. So I start going to like raves and, and, and garage clubs and I become good at this thing, man. I become good at, I have the uniform. So all this kind of this idea of the bad man trope within these kind of communities, your comportment, how you dress, how you speak, how you carry yourself, all those things matter and they, and they place you in a hierarchy. But it's only as I start understanding this and it starts unraveling it, I start seeing that, there's a there's a construct and you're kind of you're kind of sitting in between the two, man. Anthony, I guess you could kind of speak to it like so being a battle rap champion, but also working in education. These things that like you're, yeah. you're, these two contradictions, man. I think do you know what at its core is just to do with language, it's to do with words. One of the things it's always fascinated me. Like I'm an avid reader. Yeah. So um I like how what people do with words i like how they construct things so iceberg slim he's not your average author he uses language that like has in like flair proper flair irvin welsh when you read an irvin welsh book you read in a scottish accent right he like he writes things fit 
football for football. Do you know what I mean? But it makes you say that in a Scottish accent when you're reading it, right? So in terms of language, it's what you can do. So the two things, education and battle rap, uh, it's essentially the same thing because it's just the use of language, but it's using them in, in two different ways. Like the kids that I teach, they're, they're on board more with the uh, the battle rap side of things. The, the, they learn better. Like they 100% learn better. When you're incorporating art, when you're incorporating art and poetics within yes. knowledge, they learn better. Yeah. But also, like, because of the stuff, I mean, the stuff that these children listen to. Like, as, as kids, tease, we heard NWA, but we had to go out and search for it, right? Mm-hmm. You had to have someone who had a vinyl or had a tape or had the CD or, and then you had to have something to play it on. These kids hold something in their hands all day long and it's being brought into them. Yeah, they, they, there's no filter for them. So you can be six years old and know all the words to a Cardi B song. No one was playing us Ice Cube when we were six. How they absorb this stuff, they absorb this, this very this same trope that you're talking about. They take this on board in a... Um, like a lot of my students, I've got some of them who will talk about, like, I'm a road man. I'm a, like, bro, you're 11 years old. you definitely not a road man. <laughs> like, I'm, I know my little sister would chew you up. Like, <laughs> you are not that guy. Um, but they have all these influences um, that they have kind of just build on. So when they look at the battle aspect, they look at it as aggression. They look at it like, how can I, how, how uh, it's just using aggression. But then I show them, no, it's using your smarts. It's not just aggression. You can't just shout at him and win. You've got to be clever. You've got to be strategic. So I try to just use that the, the aspect of battle rap to let them know there is more to this. It's not just this two-dimensional, this this trope, this same thing that are ah, with just it's just a bad man thing. It's just I'm gonna go in there and insult him and carry myself this way. No, you gotta be smart about it. There's a dynamic to this. Because what if he does this? How do you respond? It's not as simple as being overly aggressive and adhering to a stereotype. There's things I tell them, the very first thing that I do, because I teach rap class, and the very first thing that I tell them is read. Read everything you can. Yeah, the more words, because this is a words-based sport. So the more words you know, the, the better your advantage is. Like, you're going to know, you're going to be at advantage to anybody else. Your vocabulary is going to be way out there. Yeah, you're going to impact better. And a lot of them, they'll look at me like, really? So all right, so we'll play a game and we'll just play little word games. And OK, look, so your vocabulary is not that great. But his look how many different words he knows. You know, like if you've got synonyms and antonyms, how many can you name? How many of these things can you do? And then all of a sudden they start to see the value in the language that they use in and how they can use it. In terms of the battle rap, I try to bring in that element, that, 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 that macho element the masculine element into it but to show them kind of there is a craft to it there is that aspect but there's something else you've got to use and sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't man I'm not gonna lie <laughs> do you think that some of the things that Tiso was talking about so how hip-hop how rap is marketed to the masses is there like a sort of simplicity to it that doesn't allow for the complexities the nuances and the actual knowledge production that it is to come out like, yeah. is that what we're talking about here? I think, yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head there. Like, I mean... And that pisses me off. Oh, yeah. A hundred percent. I feel like what you've just said 
about how you teach mm-hmm. is so clear it, it's pissed me off because it's making me think about all the rappers like yourself that are extremely passionate extremely educated and have got absolute have worked so hard on their talent so then you're sat in front of sort of like the commercial the corporates and they're like okay this is how we market you or this is how we do this and you're just like yeah. oh so now I've got to be the bad man or now I've got to portray the bad man yeah it's pretty much that uh when we signed with poisonous poets we signed to um the Sony BMG it was a subsidiary of Sony BMG right it was a smaller label attached to them it meant we went to Sony offices like I, I got to, to walk around these massive things gold plaques on the wall all that but we had a meeting where we finished the album and we played the album for the head executives and it was like they were all white men like they were all very old white men and at the time I was like 20 so these people seemed like they was a hundred years old to me you know what I mean they, they were probably only in their 50s and 60s but they seemed like they was a hundred years old um, mm. and when we'd gone we played the whole album he said like but it doesn't sound like that and he, he named another group that was quite popular at the time and we're like well it's not gonna sound like that because we're not them but what they were looking for was because this was this thing was already successful. So they wanted to for us to follow in that same formula to achieve that same type of success. And then so what you had as a, a grow as it grew into was people would look on YouTube. So if you had an independent artist who all of a sudden he had 10 million views on YouTube, they would sign him because they don't have to do any work. All they have to do is get paid. He he is already his thing, he's got 10 million views by himself. Well, we, we can just get him another 10 million, but we don't have to do as much work. Now they do it on SoundCloud or TikTok. Oh my, mm-hmm. like TikTok has, has been responsible for so many like top 10, top 20 hits in the past two or three years. Songs you never would have heard of, but kids hear it on this little snippet, play over and over again. It gets 20, 30 million views and the record label says, hey, I'll have that and we'll put it out there. So it's, the game never changes. It's consistently, they look for something that people are already buying into. And they're like, well, how do we just put that exact same thing out into a, to a bigger audience? We won't worry about the art, the craft, the people who are, uh, who are actually putting that real work in to try and do something positive or do something different. No, we just want to make money. It's a vehicle for making money. So we'll follow this. And it's been consistent through music. There is part of it. There's music as a way out. For example, when Drill first started, Chief Keith and all his crew, it is a way out of people. So young kids can do something on their phone and they can get followers and it can provide a way to navigate out of poverty. Rap music is and has always been a tool to navigate white supremacy, to navigate real life. So that is part and parcel of it, right? But also what's quite troubling is that how it still sits under the white gaze it chooses even from our point from 1989 all the way up to 2021 images of urban black decay and black pain to set itself and to reproduce itself in different ways now whether it's where we're talking about either we're talking about drill and knife crime or we're talking about jay-z and pimps and players or we're talking about wu-tang and 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 five percenters and all that kind of stuff it's all similar right and it all passes through different phases. And what's important is when you talk about when you talk about language, right? So language is a key constituent part of culture. 
So what you say is how you start representing yourself. And so what I'm trying to say to you, what's quite interesting in Stan is like when we leave primary school, we're quite sheltered. We come to secondary school and then all of a sudden we start living a life. And then that life takes a life of its own. Now, is this life representative of us or is it the music that's influenced us? Which one comes first, right? I don't know. And I, I spoke to my mum about this the other day, Stan, right? And she said to me, she was worried about us, right? W- worried about me more so when I got in, when I got radicalised, <laughs> when, when, when I went off the track. <laughs> That's all the funniest shit in the world, man. <laughs> there was a form of hip-hop that was uh, very pro-black. So a couple of our other uh, mutual friends were listening to it at the same time. And this music, for me, it spoke to me in a way that it kind of, um, of black awakening, of politicization and a whole history that I didn't know so it it was like a a knowledge of self when you're young and impressionable a knowledge of self can take you to different places it made me look at things differently it made me think about blackness differently made me understand have a pride in myself and question history and ultimately kind of spark the person I am today to start questioning her things and but the similarity that we have there is the idea of learning rap was it gave me ability to learn and to question things so this site of cultural production, like you said, we have to be careful of the language that we're using. And language is a key part of it, like you said. But once you start constructing language in a certain way, it allows people to represent themselves in a particular way. You're sitting at this tension. And right now, we're again kind of seeing the kind of social panic around rap music. But this time, it's a subgenre of rap called drill. Is drill, is art imitating life? Is life imitating art? And most people will take it as given, like, that's what black people are like. You all stab each other. Pick any period in time in America. 60s, 40s, 20s, 1850s, 1750s. They wasn't listening to rap music. They may have been some of the most brutal human beings on the planet. Brutalised a whole other demographic based on a social construct of race. Yeah, like they did incredibly brutal things. And swept it under the rug. No one addresses that. You don't. At no point is that recognised. We're going through it right now in this country, where people are trying to say, "Well, this particular person that you've got a statue to, he did some terrible things." And on the flip side, they're saying, "Oh, we don't know. We don't have to talk about that." You're trying to rewrite history. And you're like, "No, we're trying to add to your history. It's not. It's not revision. It's, it's telling you the whole story." I can't tell you a story yet. We was three nil up with ten minutes to go. Because it's not the whole story. Because at 90 minutes, it was free, free. Yeah, but I'm only telling you up to 80 minutes, right? That's not a whole story. Me telling you the whole story is the 90 minutes of the game. And it turned out it was different. So we got kind of, I think, it's not so much hip hop. I think black culture generally, we've got the, the, the Fred Hampton movie coming out now. It's, black culture is generally made a scapegoat for all the ills of the world. Fred, look at how they murdered Fred, Fred Hampton. They walked in, they shot him up while he was in bed with, uh, with his girlfriend. And they said they started a shooting outside. They, they did their science and found out all the bullets went in. There was no shots coming out. The narrative is always, we always in a position where we have to show, we have to justify our own actions and say, okay, this, this is why we do these things. So, so I think it's forever made a scapegoat. In terms of like when you talked about the white gaze, it's how we live. Modern culture, like the last 500 years has been under the white gaze. It, 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 it's the dominant, like it, that, that's the culture, the dominant culture. So everything has to be looked at through that lens. Um, so in terms of us coming out, I, I think we're just in a place now where we're saying, well, 
there's other aspects of your culture that we want to we want to shed light on. We want to look at, and they don't want to do that. They want to keep the focus on us and how we're doing stuff. Because you like, don't tell me that UK drill is responsible for knife crime because Scotland has a massive history of knife crime. Like it might have been a knife cap, murder capital of, of Europe. Drill wasn't an effect of it. And when it came to even fixing their problem of knife crime, they didn't look at it from, a, from an issue of colour, of race, of, of music. They looked at it as a social issue. Like these are our human, these are our human beings. Yeah, and something's going wrong here. How do we fix that? How do we? So it's only, they only come to us with that very particular way of, right, how are you going to fix your thing? And it winds me up because you've got people like, they'll say to you, what are you doing about knife crime? You're making all this music, but what are you doing? Bro, you're not in the meetings that I'm in. Yeah, you don't come to the places I go. Like, I'm here, I'm in the hood. Like, I speak to the kids around, like, around my area. I do, I speak to the kids in school. I speak to the kids in on the estate. You're not there. You don't know what I'm talking to them about. You're not part of it. You're not privy to it. So don't sit there and point fingers and say, ah, oh, well, what are you doing? Because this is what I am doing. What are you doing? You there trying to deny your own your own history and heritage and the impact that you play, the part that you that you play in making things the way they are. You just you, you don't want to deal with that. But you don't don't criticize me because I'm here with my hands to the pump. Like, yeah, I'm not here. I'm not here. So many important points you just made there, Tony. And I think that this is where I mean. Me and Tiso talk quite a lot about music and in particular we talk about music and we talk about masculinity and we talk about blackness and we talk about class and like it, we're always I feel like we're always treading a bit of a line because we never want music or culture or artistic expression to be used in a way that scapegoats and blames because that's what the mass do that's what the state does they've got a vested interest in doing that but then how can we talk about some of the things that happen within our multi-dimensional diasporas and in particular let's think about our our varying black diasporas in the UK or let's just talk about London for example how can we talk about our cultures and music and hip-hop in a way that is nuanced that doesn't let the state play into sort of scapegoating blaming racism but also us talking about things together so I'm not talking about knife crime here actually because Mm -hmm. I completely agree with you public health approach social issue But what I'm talking about in particular here is thinking about masculinity, thinking about patriarchy, thinking about sexism. What role does hip hop and has music played in that? How can we push against that stuff or what is happening to push against that? Chantel hit the nail on the head. As I've got older, I kind of struggle now, like listening to the stuff that some of the stuff that we listened to before. Like, again, I can appreciate the wordplay, but the mad sexism, the mad kind of masculinity. Like, for a long time, you don't realise how that shaped your own masculinity. I'll give you an example. We were listening to NWA in 1989, and one of my, my favourite tracks on there is called I Ain't The One. I Ain't The One is a, a young black guy talking about he's not going to be a victim of female wiles and deception. And so for a long time, that becomes my anthem. I'm thinking, but at this point, I haven't even had a girlfriend. But I'm yeah. thinking, I am a gangster. She's, I, I'm talking about, I've got a car, but I've, I've ne- I, I'm 11. <laughs> this becomes a reality. And and so you start listening to other stuff and you start trying to live that life. Yes, it's self-fulfilling, but yes, it isn't as well. So like, it's a tension, isn't it? Like both of, like, both of those things can exist at the same time. Like that mis- misogynistic lyrics don't have to translate into your everyday life but it's the existence of misogynistic lyrics the thing that we need to talk about 
or yeah does that make tony what do you think like in american culture the word bitch is interchangeable with woman or friend or female it's like the n-word it's, it's like they kind of took the most negative things and just said you, you know what it's part of our everyday vernacular we'll just use it some of the things yes yeah, some of the music i had grown up listening to and do you know what less so hip-hop more dancehall See, I, I love them, man. I love going bashment dance. They, bro, they play Celine Dion at the end, man. It's all they even it out. Yeah, they, it's, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> um, no, like, cause I always think it's funny. I learned it. Just it sounds so weird, right? It just sounds so mad. But I learned how to have sex from bashment records, right? And I'll be honest. It's, <laughs> As a as a as a grown man now, it's probably some of the worst advice I have ever heard in my life. Like there's literally there's no pleasure for the woman whatsoever. It's just like for for seven hours. If you can do that for seven hours, you are the guy. You see, that's interesting, right? So what we're talking about is the constructions of masculinity. Why are these choices being made within the music, right? So we kind of address the idea there's a, a kind of structure from outside, but also there's a dialogue that's, ha- that's happening within the community, right? So like you just said, that boom, we're from the same school. So we're listening to the same type of music. Then when we meet the older boys who are olders and we look up to, they're just repeating what we just heard. So they said, if you can't have sex for seven hours, you're a failure as a man. And I'm thinking to myself, right, that's a lot of pressure, bro. It's like the whole school day, the whole school day, bro. <laughs> You get me? And so you're thinking to yourself, like, all these constructions of masculinity, that these now, these are conversations that are happening within the community. So there's stuff that will happen. So already we're policing ourselves but with arbitrary lines of what masculinity is, or what blackness is, or what women are, or what our relationship with women will be, you know? So mm-hmm. these conversations of these constructions, I guess the argument is, how do they subordinate other forms of masculinity the homophobia that's latent inside hip-hop right suppresses that that other way of being perhaps also though as we're seeing more women come through Hmm. in hip-hop and particularly seeing more black queer women as well like Hmm. this it's huge like you're seeing a massive disruption of some of the things we're talking about we're talking about a sort of homogenous black patriarchal homophobic sexist masculinity like that's what we're talking about here but I think what you'll probably find throughout history is there's always been people that have been pushing against that but are within the diaspora that are within the culture it's just whether the guys in Sony think that is the pe- the people that are going to sell the records. Always know. So once you get into hip hop, you understand there's always undercurrents, right? So we understand there's a for every NWA there's a KRS one. There's always this kind of thing. But when we the kind of sense of identity that's kind of built up within the community, these things are not open discussed. So you see the, the idea of someone being gay was so we were so anti that for a long time without even understanding. But these were the conversations within the community. So you, you go to anything that's underground. All those, all those subordinate ways of being, all those um, marginalised ways of being are, are suppressed. And there's one dominant form that exists. I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just saying if that's the mainstream, if that is what is being accepted, there's always people that are pushed throughout history. There's always people that are pushing up against that. So I'm just saying hmm. I think it's important to recognise that there you have the sort of dominant and then you have also people that are on the outside. I mean, there are, there, there are um, 
like queer rappers and gay rappers that, that are out now and, and yeah and after the, the thing about it is is um i think we're i have a lot of faith in our younger generations in as much as they don't they don't see things as rigid as perhaps we did when we were coming up. When we when we were coming up, the lines were very much drawn. These were like, this is how you are, this, 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 this. And I think there's a whole generation coming up now. My children are part of it, like, and I'm, I'm so proud of them. They don't have these judgments at all. Like, and the funny thing is, even outside of hip hop and, and that t- type of masculinity, both sides of my family are Catholic. And both sides of my family are homophobic to the lesser or a greater extent, depending on who you talk to. Yeah, it's growing up, it wasn't it wasn't okay to like people would look at you, oh, you're gay. That's something that's different. Whereas now, and I, I see, I, I see in school, it's not a thing that people even bat eyelid at, man. And like it's it's incredible to see because it's like I couldn't think of anything worse than not being allowed to be you. Because even me, myself, growing up, mixed race, Irish, Dominican, in South London, in a poor part of South London, uh, in an estate where there were very few, mostly Asian and black children. That mostly all that was there. Lots of mixed race kids. Mm-hmm. But I had a hard time sitting, fitting in anywhere because no one in my house looked like me. Like... No, like no one in my family, in that Irish, the Irish side of my family, no one looks like me. I'm the only one with skin like this and hair like this. It just so happened that my family never looked at me as they, they never made an issue of it. Yeah, it, it was just accepted. I'd like that's not a major thing. So I couldn't imagine if I was gay and I, I had to, I felt I had to hide it or it, like. Imagine not being able to be yourself, to, to be you, just like having that, that fear. And that fear has existed for most of like the last, I don't know how many hundreds of years. And it's really recently that we've come out and we can say these things. And now these, like we've got little kids growing up, these, these future generations who don't kind of have the uh, the hangover. They don't have, I don't know, I think the negative narrative attached to it. Um and it's, it's wonderful to see, man. It's proper good to see. And I think these children growing up now are having a completely different understanding of it. In some ways, you're seeing it also regarding race and ethnicity. There are certain things that's happening. All these children, there would be a way where people would say, you talk black, right? You really talk black. Mm. And now they, these kids all talk the same. Like they, they, There's not a black way of speaking or a white way of speaking. There is a kid way of speaking and if you under the age of 16 years old that's how you talk like mm-hmm. uh, and i think that is their new version the stuff that we grew up with the lines that we had did this version of masculinity they just kind of have a new version and i think it allows for more things to it allows for more things to flourish under that the, that title of masculinity um, and it's, it's good to see man and i don't know how much the mainstream is going to push it in terms of our music it, mm. But there definitely is a culture, a subculture where they can come out and they can make these points and they're accepted on some level. And this is important. That's where the hope lies. I said, with these new technologies that we have, technologies that can leverage solidarities from below. So kids could go on it and be themselves and have and have that platform to voice that themselves through 
uh, a rap video or, or through a TikTok. This allows them to explore masculinities or whatever in in more fluid. Again, outside those prying eyes, you know. So people talk about echo chambers as if they're sometimes a negative thing, but mm. in these echo chambers that these kids are creating, they're doing positive things, man. They're changing yeah. the story, changing the narrative, and they feed it back into the mainstream because ultimately that will shift people's trends. And hope, hopefully, capitalism will shift because people start buying X, and it will make the executives do Y. Hopefully, hopefully. Yeah. But, <laughs> but in terms of hope, that's where I see hope, and that's where I kind of it kind of full circle. That's where I see hip hop as liberation, man. It's always been about that liberation. Like you had low key on a while ago, man. Like so, he was in the rap group with me. Like that's how he he, he earned his bones. You know what I mean? That's how he earned his straps with poisonous poets. Um, and the stuff I've seen him do, because he's he's quite a bit younger than me. Like uh, mm. when he joined, he was still a teenager, and I was not a teenager anymore, man. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the stuff I've seen him do, the change I've seen him make in other people, like and it's uh, he he just brought people in who weren't. Um, who just may not have been on board, but he just opened up so many things. And I think it's so important for, uh, like hip hop has always done that. It's always broken down doors. It's always uh, run DMC being the first rap group on MTV, uh, but they had to do it with a rock band. Do you know what I mean? No one just put rap on MTV. They had to merge it ever so slightly. Each stage, each stage, it gets easier and easier to kind of, to, to filter it in and put your message out. Um, and like you just said, with the, with the internet, where we would have been in class listening to the same record and then we'd have gone home, like, bro, Kizzy K, yeah? yeah? I see Kizzy everywhere. Every hip-hop event I go to, Kizzy's there. I still see him. Like, yeah. 30 years later, I see him everywhere because yeah. that's where he is. But you would have yeah. only known about him. It would have been from the ends and then from school. But now we've got this thing where we can reach out I've got people that contact me from Iran, from Australia, uh, from New, like New Zealand, from the Ukraine. Just I'm a fan of what you do, man. I, I, I like it. So we have got these little, these echo chambers, yeah, the, via the internet, where you're not just one person on your own. All of a sudden you find out, wow, there's like, seven million people that like the same niche thing that I like. It just so happens we're in seven million different locations, but there is a community of us. And as we, we, we come, as they come together like that, you're right. It does kind of, it makes the mainstream look and say, okay, well, there is a need for it. So we might be able to make money off of it. So maybe we'll push it into the mainstream. Sometimes I think that's all you got hope for. But see, so what you just said there, the idea that you're in different places, right? So this challenges the idea of of a nation, right? So you're all from different parts of us. You're challenging the very basis of modernity. You're challenging the very kind of things that kind of structure. So things that cause us a, fuck, a fuckery has been a nation state. So you're challenging that because you're creating a lingua franca that sits above the nation state. So this this trans this trans international world that people are scared of, but people are scared of when they voted Brexit, it's happening. It's happening. It's happening. It's always been happening. It's quite people like Stuart Hall with new ethnicities and the idea of like cultures that are transversing. That before it used to be through ships, now it's through optic fiber. It's continuous. It's an ongoing process. Three six five, and you're transcending modernity, which 
which most people would, wouldn't think of, but you're doing this on the every day. So it's everyday living. You're explaining the everyday and, and explain people how you encounter race or, or, or some kind of violence or poverty, but you're explaining to people and it's, it's changing the narrative. It's music is liberation. Like how you just said it, music is liberation. I never, it never occurred to me just in like that before. But as you said it, it's just, you said it earlier and it's just been going around and around in my head. And I don't have any qualifications. I have none. You like, but we went to school together. You know what I was like at school, man. <laughs> he's, he's a smart guy, man. He's a super, super, super smart guy. But uh, like, and then we went to college. We went to college together. I stopped going to college when it was dark in the morning, man. Like, I, I just dropped out. So, and like, I've had a million odd jobs and menial jobs and whatnot. But the thing that I've stayed, that's, I've, it's been one true constant, is rap. I've always liked rap music, and uh, it has freed me, man. Like I'm, a, I'm, a, uh, yeah, I'm that liberation. It's, it's proper. It's, it's just profound, as you said. It's been going over and round and round in my head. <laughs> like, where would I be without it? What freedom would I have without it? How liberated would I be without that music, man? Because it's, it's it's given me so much. It's given me it's like first of all, it's given me a platform where. Like I, I do stuff like this. I get to talk to people about my own experience and about how I see the world. So it's given me a platform. It's given me an opportunity to go around the world, man. I've been around Europe. I've been as far as Canada. I've been on ITV. I've been on BBC. I've been on Channel 4. I've got millions of views on YouTube, which has allowed me to make money, which now I'm in, uh, I'm in the role of an educator. So I, I teach. I work in a primary school. Like I teach emotional literacy is something that I studied. I had uh, it goes really, really, really well together. The emotional side of it and understanding how because music is emotion, so the two things have uh, they they come together. But yeah, like that is really interesting. Where would I be without music? What would have happened to me without music? How would uh, that liberation? Would I be liberated? How trapped would I still be? Where would I be, man? Do you know what I mean? Because look at the journey that it's brought you on. You've come full circle and here we are having a conversation about something that we used to do 30 years ago. And you see, the thing is, for us, it was it was a nothing, right? Listen mm-hmm. to that thing, it was a nothing. But all through your life, interspersing through our life, it's been a conversation with this this art form and, and it's various subgenres. So whether it branches off into house or garage or jungle, but it's also... That, that 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 music is engaging with a particular social sector, a social substrata and, and a subculture. So it's always this conversation and, and it's always this changing. And now we're coming into the other side of it. We're coming to the end. We're coming like our parents, man. And so you're reflecting. You're, you're reflecting on it, man. And when I see all the stuff that's brought us to this point and, and you speak and I, see, and I see your kids and, and I see the kids that we speak to and, I, and it makes me optimistic in a way that I had never been throughout that journey mm. and that is that's the hope man that's how you survive society bro tony thank you so much for joining us it's thanks been for having me man absolutely amazing <laughs> can't believe we've had like one of tiso's biggest childhood friends and best friends on the show like it's an absolute <laughs> honor 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 um, i can't believe how articulate he is it's incredible. You know what? Sometimes it shocks me. 
thank you so much for joining us listeners thank you for supporting us and listening to us week after week patrons there's another episode for you now thank you so much for your support and we'll see you again next week thank you for listening to surviving society with Chantal and tiso you can now continue the conversation with us on twitter and instagram If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. 